Hello, my name is Thomas. Welcome to British Culture. Albion never dies. This is a special bonus episode to mark the release of the new Netflix movie, Bodicea, Queen of War, starring former Bond girl Olga Kurylenko. She, of course, played Camille in Quantum of Solace, one of the more memorable Bond girls of the Craig era, I'd suggest. Who is Queen Bodicea? Well, first of all, I haven't seen the movie. It's released either today, depending where you are in the world, or sometime later this week, but I thought I'd present the real history. This is a re-release of a section of a podcast I did more than a year ago, so it's part of Q is for Queen. I focused on Queen Bodicea because I thought she's one of the most interesting queens, and there haven't been many portrayals of her, so very interested in this new movie, but I thought I'd represent this section of the, what at the time was a bumper-length episode, 15 minutes, so here is the essential part all about Queen Bodicea. Um, so who is Bodicea? Just a quick overview. Had a look on the Encyclopedia Britannica, always a good source. Bodicea's husband, Prasutagus was king of the Icenian, what's now Norfolk, as a client under Roman suzerainty. When Prasutagus died in uh, 60, the year 60, with no male heir, he left his private wealth to his two daughters and the emperor Nero, trusting thereby to win imperial protection for his family. Instead, the Romans annexed his kingdom, humiliated his family, and plundered the chief tribesmen. While the provincial governor, Suetonius Paulinus, was absent, Bodicea raised a rebellion throughout East Anglia. The insurgents burned Camulodonium, which is Colchester, Verulamian, St Albans, the Mart of Londinium, London, and several military posts. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, Bodicea's rebels massacred 70,000 Romans and pro-Roman Britons and cut to pieces the Roman Ninth Legion. Paulinus met the Britons at a point thought to be near present-day Fenny Stratford on Watling Street and regained the province in a desperate battle. Upon her loss, Bodicea either took poison or died of shock or illness. So, Queen Bodicea, who allegedly said the words, Britons shall never be slaves, she is the, the leader of the Great Rebellion against the Romans, pretty early on in the Roman conquest of Britain. As the Encyclopedia Britannica said, much of what we know about her comes from the Roman historian Tacitus. And what I find really interesting is that if the victors write the history, uh, and the Romans, of course, were the victors and did write the history, nonetheless, it's not a vindication of the Romans. Tacitus is, I'd say, surprisingly scathing for an ancient historian on the Roman side and gives a great deal of praise to the, to the courage and leadership of Queen Bodicea. It's something I've often read about, so I thought... Why not just go straight to the source? Why not go straight to Tacitus? It is, of course, um, <laughs> out of copyright. You know, he's, he wrote 2,000 years ago. Um, almost. The translations, of course, you know, are very much owned by the person who translated them. But I found online on uh, penelope.uchicago.edu, uh, I found uh, a reproduction of a, a translation of Tacitus from 1937. The text is in the public domain, uh, freely printed by them. So unusually, I'm going to read out a good long section from the Annals of Tacitus, uh, Book 14, paragraphs 31 to 39. This is the bit that pertains very much to 
to Bodicea, who is a legendary queen. She's been portrayed, you know, in, in statues, in a poem by Tennyson, in dramas, in films. She's quite a legendary figure. But here we have, I'd say, the most authoritative source on Bodicea. And let's have a look through it, just word for word. Here we go. The Icenian king, Prasutagus, celebrated for his long prosperity, had named the emperor his heir together with his two daughters, an act of deference which he thought would place his kingdom and household beyond the risk of injury. The result was contrary. So much so that his kingdom was pillaged by centurions, his household by slaves, as though they had been prizes of war. As a beginning, his wife Bodicea was subject to the lash, and his daughters violated. All the chief men of the Icenians were stripped of their family estates, and the relatives of the king were treated as slaves. Impelled by this outrage, and the dread of worse to come, for they had now been reduced to the status of a province, they flew to arms, and incited to rebellion by the Trinobantes, and others who, not yet broken by servitude, had entered into a secret and treasonable compact to resume their independence. The bitterest animosity was felt against the veterans who, fresh from the settlement in the colony of Camulodunum, were acting as though they had received a free gift of the entire country, driving the natives from their homes, ejecting them from their lands, which they styled them captives and slaves, and abetted in their fury by the troops, with their similar mode of life and their hopes of equal indulgence. More than this, the temple raised the deified Claudius, continually met the view, like the citadel of an eternal tyranny, while the priests chosen for its service were bound under the pretext of religion to pour out their fortunes like water. Nor do there seem to be any great difficulty in the demolition of a colony unprotected by fortifications, a point too little regarded by our commanders, whose thought had run more on the agreeable than on the useful. Meanwhile, for no apparent reason, the statue of victory at Camulodonium fell, with its back turned as if in retreat from the enemy. Women, converted into maniacs by excitement, cried that destruction was at hand, and that alien cries had been heard in the invaders' senate house. The theatre had rung with shrieks, and in the estuary of the Thames had been seen a vision of the ruined colony. Again, it appeared that the ocean had been blood-red, and the ebbing tide had left behind it what looked to be human corpses, were indications read by the Britons with hope and by the veterans with corresponding alarm. However, as Suetonius was far away, they applied for help to the procurator, Catus de Cianus. He had sent not more than 200 men without their proper weapons. In addition, there was a small body of troops in the town. Relying on the protection of the temple, and hampered also by covert adherents of rebellion who interfered with their plans, they neither secured the position by foss or rampart, nor took steps by removing the women and the aged to leave only able-bodied men in place. They were as carelessly guarded as if the world was at peace, when they were enveloped by a great barbarian host. All else was pillaged or fired in the first onrush. Only the temple, in which the troops had massed themselves, stood a two-day siege, and was then carried by storm. Turning to meet Petilius Serialis, the commander of the Ninth Legion, who was arriving to the rescue, the victorious Britons routed the legion and slaughtered the infantry to a man. Serialis 
with the cavalry, escaped to the camp and found shelter behind the fortifications. Unnerved by the disaster and the hatred of the province, which his rapacity had goaded into war, the procurator Catus crossed to Gaul. Suetonius, on the other hand, with remarkable firmness, marched straight through the midst of the enemy upon London, which, though not distinguished by the title of colony, was nonetheless a busy centre, chiefly through its crowd of merchants and stores. Once there, he felt some doubt whether to choose it as a base of operations, but on considering the fewness of his troops and the efficiently severe lesson which had been read to the rashness of Petilus, he is determined to save the country as a whole at the cost of one town. The laments and tears of the inhabitants that he implored his protection found him inflexible. He gave the signal for departure and embodied in the column those capable of accompanying the march. All who had been detained by the disabilities of sex, the lassitude of age, or by local attachment fell into the hands of the enemy. A similar catastrophe was reserved for the municipality of Verulanium, as natives, with their delight in plunder and their distaste for exertion, left the forts and garrison posts on the one side and made for the point which offered the richest material for the pillager and was unsafe for a defending force. It is established that close upon 70,000 Roman citizens and allies fell in the places mentioned. For the enemy neither took captive nor sold into slavery. There was none of the other commerce of war. He was hasty with slaughter and the gibbet, with arson and the cross, as though his day of reckoning must come, but only after he had snatched his revenge in the interval. Suetanius had already the 14th legion, with a detachment of the 12th and auxiliaries from the nearest stations, altogether some 10,000 armed men, and he prepared to abandon delay and contest a pitched battle. He chose a position approached by a narrow defile and secured in the rear by a wood, first satisfying himself that there was no trace of an enemy except in his front, and that the plain there was devoid of cover and allowed no suspicion of an ambush. The legions were posted in serried ranks, the light-armoured troops on either side with the cavalry massed on the extreme wings. The British forces, on the other hand, deposed in bands of foot and horse, were moving jubilantly in every direction. They were in unprecedented numbers, with confidence running so high that they brought even their wives to witness the victory and installed them in wagons which had stationed just over the extreme fringe of the plain. Bodicea, mounted in a chariot with her daughters before her, rode up to clan after clan and delivered her protest. It was customary, she knew, with Britons to fight under female captaincy, but now she was avenging not as a queen of glorious ancestry, her ravaged realm and power, but as a woman of the people, her liberty lost, her body tortured by the lash, the tarnished honour of her daughters. Roman cupidity had progressed so far that not their very persons, nor age itself, nor maidenhood were left unpolluted. Yet heaven was on the side of their just revenge. One legion which ventured battle had perished, the rest were skulking in their camps, or looking around them for a way of escape. They would never face even the din and roar of these many thousands, far less their onslaught and their swords. If they considered in their own hearts the forces under arms and the motives of the war, on that field they must conquer or fall. Such was the settled purpose of a woman, the men might live and be slaves. Even Suetonius, in this critical moment, broke silence. In spite of his reliance on the courage of the men, he still blended exhaustions and entreaty. 
They must treat with contempt the noise and empty menace of the barbarians in the ranks opposite. More women than soldiers meet the eye, unwarlike and unarmed. They'll break immediately when, taught by so many defeats, they recognize once more the steel and valor of their conquerors. Even in a number of legions, it was but a few men who decided the fate of battles, and it would be an additional glory that they, a handful of troops, were gathering the laurels of an entire army. Only keeping their order close, and when their javelins were discharged, employing shield boss and sword, let them steadily pile up the dead and forget the thought of plunder. Once the victory was gained, all would be their own. Such was the ardour following the general's word. Such alacrity had his veteran troops, with a long experience of battle, prepared themselves in a moment to hurl the pillum, that Suetonius, without doubt of the issue, gave signal to engage. At first, the legionaries stood motionless, keeping to the defile as a natural protection. Then, when the closer advance of the enemy had enabled them to exhaust their missiles with certitude of aim, they dashed forward in a wedge-like formation. The auxiliaries charged in the same style, and the cavalry, with the lances extended, broke a way through any parties of resolute men whom they encountered. The remainder took to flight, although escape was difficult, as the cordon of wagons had blocked the outlets. The troops gave no quarter even to the wound. The baggage animals themselves had been speared and added to the pile of bodies. The glory won in the course of the day was remarkable and equal to that of our older victories, for, by some accounts, little less than 80,000 Britons fell, at the cost of some 400 Romans killed, and a not much greater number of wounded. Bodicea ended her days by poison. Was Ponius Postumus, camp prefect of the Second Legion, informed of the exploits of the men of the 14th and 20th, and conscious he had cheated his own corps of a share in the honour, and had violated the rules of the service by ignoring the orders of his commander, ran a sword through his body. The whole army was now concentrated and kept under canvas, with a view to finishing what was left of the campaign. Its strength was increased by the Caesar, who sent over from Germany 2,000 legionaries, 8 cohorts of auxiliaries, and 1,000 cavalry. Their advent allowed the gaps in the night legion to be filled with regular troops, the allied foot and horse were stationed in a new winter quarters, and the tribes which had shown themselves dubious or disaffected were harried with fire and sword. Nothing, however, pressed so hard as famine on an enemy who, careless about the sowing of his crops, had diverted all ages of the population to military purposes whilst marking out our supplies for his own property. Still, hatred of Rome was persistent, and the fierce-tempered clans inclined to move slowly to peace, because Julius Classinicus had been sent in succession to Catus and was not on good terms with Suetonius, was hampering the public welfare by his private animosities, and who had circulated a report that it would be well to wait for a new legate, who, lacking the bitterness of an enemy and the arrogance of a conqueror, would show consideration to those who surrendered. At the same time, he reported to Rome that no cessation of fighting need be expected until the arrival and supersession of Suetonius, the failures of whom he referred to his own perversity, his successes to the kindness of fortune. According to Polyclitus, one of the freed men who had been sent to inspect the state of Britain, Nero, cherishing high hopes that through his influence not only might a reconciliation be effected between the legate and the procurator, but the rebellious temper of the natives be brought to acquiesce in peace. Polyclitus, in fact, 
whose immense train had been an incubus to Italy and Gaul, did not fail. When, once, he had crossed the seas to render his march a terror even to Roman soldiers. To the enemy, on the other hand, he was a subject of derision. With them, the fire of freedom was not yet quenched. They still had to make acquaintance with the power of freedmen, and they wondered that a general and an army who had accounted for such a war should obey a troop of slaves. Nonetheless, everything was reported to the emperor in a more favourable light. Suetonius was retained at the head of affairs, but when later on he lost a few ships on the beach and the crews with them, he was ordered under pretense that the war was still in being to transfer his army to Petronius Turpilinus who by now had laid down his consulate. The newcomer abstained from provoking the enemy and was not challenged himself and conferred on this spiritless action the honourable name of peace. There we go. It's unusual for me to read out such a long piece. But on this occasion, just to go to the original source from almost 2,000 years ago and get an insight from the Roman perspective on an ancient British queen, I felt this was an exceptional piece and one worth going into. Of course, if you walk along in the modern day, along the Thames, towards the Houses of Parliament, you can see the statue, Boadicea and her daughters, created by Thomas Thornycroft, who worked on it between 1856 and his death in 1885. It was erected by his son in its current place in 1902. And it's a great, imposing statue of Boadicea on her chariot. Um, Again, reminding us of the long tradition of freedom in Britain. So there we go. At the very, very beginning of British history, we have a very, very powerful queen. Thank you very much for listening to this special bonus podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found the story of Queen Bodicea as interesting as I find it. Of course, there are two pronunciations of her name, Bodicea, which is what I was taught in school, and Boudicca, which has become more and more prevalent in recent years. However you say her name, I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and let me know what you think of the movie. Goodbye.